morning, as we look ahead to a day of thanksgiving, I want us to consider the subject, God's perfect peace in Christ Jesus. God's perfect peace in Christ Jesus. And as a text, we will be looking at the book of Philippians, a letter written by the Apostle Paul, and specifically chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. As you are probably very aware of the background of Philippians, uh, Philippians has a very interesting background. It's found in Acts chapter 16. And one of the highlights of the uh, beginning of the church in Philippi was the fact that Paul and Silas were imprisoned. They were preaching the gospel and they got beat up and shamefully treated and thrown in prison. And in most people's lives, uh, that probably would have resulted in a lot of glum, a lot of grumbling, maybe complaining or despairing or whatever uh, other negative attitudes you could think of. But in the case of Paul and Silas, uh, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and if you or I were filled with the Spirit, we probably would have responded in a similar fashion. And what they did is they prayed. They prayed and they sang hymns to God. And in doing that, uh, there was an earthquake. You know how the story goes. And all of the people in prison were broken loose. And the guard who was keeping watch over them uh, pulled out his sword, and he was going to kill himself. And yet Paul and Silas shouted in the middle of the night and told him not to do that. And uh, that guard brought Paul and Silas out and fell down before them and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they told him to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And he did, and his whole family uh, got baptized. And it's just a profound testimony uh, to the power of the living God, the power of the name of Jesus Christ, the power of believing in Jesus Christ, the power of responding to difficult circumstances with thankfulness, with prayer, dependence on God, and worship of God, and what that can do to transform a situation. I mean, it's, it's amazing if you go back when you have time to read Acts chapter 16. It's just a, an amazing story that testifies to the power of the living God in Jesus Christ and the power of his gospel. And uh, we see that same sort of theme given to us in our text this morning. Philippians chapter 4. Uh, beginning at verse 4, you find these words, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness or gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication or petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, 
will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. God's perfect peace in Christ Jesus. This uh, passage begins with a, a command, a command to rejoice in the Lord always. And in case that seems strange to you, Paul repeats the command, again I will say, rejoice. And he repeats himself because sometimes the sufferings that we go through, the sin and sinning that we experience in our own lives and see around us, uh, the self-centeredness that we often see in ourselves and in the lives of others, um, the sorrow that we are often called to walk through in this life, the sickness that we experience sometimes personally, sometimes we see it in others, uh, the death, the separation that we experience, the separation we experience right now with all of the stay-at-home orders. These things sometimes lead us to, to sulk, to despair, to be sullen in our attitude. And Paul, um, in this particular context, is talking to a group of people who are looking forward to suffering for Christ. You see that in chapter 1, in verses 27 through 30 where Paul calls them to only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. That no matter what happens, whether he's there or he's absent, uh, they would fight for the faith of the gospel, and they would in no way be afraid of their opponents. You see it also in the life of Paul himself. Paul wrote this letter in prison, probably in a Roman cell, and uh, prison is not the first place that most people like to go. Um, and, uh, but Paul, in chapter 1, verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And so he's sitting in prison thinking about ways of advancing the gospel, ways of extending God's kingdom. He's not self-absorbed or down on himself, or sulking and pouting or grumbling. He's thinking of creative ways he can share the gospel with people who he's found in prison, whether they're the guards or whether they're the prisoners. So he's undaunted by his context and by his circumstances. And sometimes in our context, we have a lot more liberties than Paul did when he was writing this letter. But sometimes in our context, we find ourselves complaining and grumbling. We often complain about the way people complain. And um, we find ourselves sulking around. And this passage in Philippians 4 calls us to rejoice in the Lord always. 
again I will say rejoice. And obviously the key is rejoicing in the Lord. It's not a passage that calls us to just be happy, happy, happy all the time, uh, but there is an object to our joy, and it is the Lord. And uh, when we think about that, uh, there's so much about the Lord that we can rejoice in. You may recall in the book of Nehemiah how Nehemiah said, uh, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And he said this to a group of people who just had been listening to the law, and they were groaning and mourning uh, because they realized how sinful they were, how they had broken covenant with God, and how they were suffering primarily because they were disobedient. But it was a holy day, and Nehemiah reminds them it was a holy day. It was a day of rejoicing. And he reminded them to rejoice in the Lord. The joy of the Lord is what gives you strength. It's what emboldens you in your soul. That's what Paul and Silas learned in prison, that rejoicing in the Lord gave them the strength to persevere even when persecuted. And God heard their joy. God heard their prayers and delivered them, and not only them, but delivered the guard who was imprisoning them and his whole family. God truly is amazing, and his power is uncomparable, incomparable. In the book of Philippians, you find so many reasons to rejoice in the Lord. For example, in chapter 1, verse 6, you find that Jesus is committed to you. He began a good work, and he will faithfully bring that work to completion. That's a reason to rejoice. The passage we just looked at in chapter 1, verse 12, uh, he's, his kingdom cannot be stopped. His kingdom and the proclamation of the gospel can never be chained up and put in prison. And so that's another reason to rejoice in the Lord. His kingdom is always making progress no matter what. In chapter 1, verse 14, you find that uh, his, his power is perfected in weakness. There it says that uh, most of the brothers uh, in the Lord, because of Paul being thrown in prison, became even more confident to preach the gospel. And so you find that the gospel, the power of the name of Jesus, cannot be stopped. You find in chapter 1, verse 18, that even though there were people preaching the gospel with false motives, that when the name of Jesus is proclaimed, the kingdom still advances. That Jesus is not, um, somehow his power is not curtailed or, or lessened because of the person who's preaching. The proclamation of the gospel moves forward. And you see that again in verses 18 through 20, uh, that Paul uh, talks about how he, he expects to, be, to see Jesus glorified in his body, whether it's through his life or through his death, that you cannot stop the progress of the kingdom. 
Not only that, but you see this throughout the whole, there's so many ways you see it in the book of Philippians, uh, but you see in chapter 2, for example, that there are so many reasons to be encouraged in Christ Jesus. And you see that there's so much comfort from the love of God that we find in Christ Jesus. And that's highlighted in chapter 2 where it talks about how Christ took on the form of a servant and became, was found in human likeness and uh, he died on the cross, the death of the cross, and how through that death uh, he has been given a name that is above every other name, the name Lord, and he has victory over all. Every knee in every place will bow to Jesus. Every tongue in every place will confess that he's the Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that also is a reason to rejoice. You see in uh, further on in this book, in, in chapter, chapter 3, that God has given us a righteousness that doesn't come through our obedience to the law, but it comes through, uh, through Jesus Christ as a gift to us. And that's a reason to rejoice, that we are declared to be just as righteous and just as sinless as Jesus Christ is. We can rejoice in the power of his resurrection, that he has uh, given us life in Christ Jesus. We can even rejoice in our sufferings because God uses those sufferings to transform our character, to equip us, to minister to others. We can rejoice in our heavenly citizenship, the fact that we have a Savior who is going to transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body one day, that our names are written in the book of life, that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, that he will supply every need we have according to his riches in glory. There are so many reasons to rejoice in the Lord. And this passage in chapter 4 teaches us very plainly that we have no right to complain, no right to grumble, no right to be sulking around or sullen in our attitude, uh, it doesn't mean that we don't experience those things, but when we do, we're called to think about the Lord, who He is, what He's done, what He's achieved, His promises, His presence with us always. And we have reason, readiness to rejoice all of the time because of Jesus. And then he goes on in verse 5 and says, Let your reasonableness, a better translation probably would be, your gentleness be known to everyone. You see that in Paul and Silas when the, when the, when the, when the guard was going to kill himself. And um, some people would have said, Yeah, kill yourself. You threw me in this prison. But, but not Paul and Silas, full of the Holy Spirit, rejoicing in the Lord, praying to God. They said, Don't do that. And this man eventually and his family got saved. Let your gentleness. And what, it, what it's aiming at is let the character of Jesus Christ be seen in you before everyone. Now that's a tall order, isn't it? It certainly is. To let Jesus Christ and his character be reflected in your life to everybody you come in contact with. Well, that's why he first said, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. 
because nobody's ever going to see Jesus in you or in me if we're not first rejoicing in Jesus to begin with. And so it is on the heels of rejoicing in the Lord always and having a commitment to rejoicing in the Lord always that the character of the Lord begins to be seen uh, and be reflected in our life. And, and why is it we're called to be gentle towards everyone? The Bible says here, because the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand, which, which means at least two things. It means that Jesus is present with you. We talked about that last week, how Christ is present right in your midst. He's in the room with you. Wherever you go, He's there with you. He's present. He's an ever-present help in trouble. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is with you wherever you go. Where can I go from your spirit, the psalmist wrote. Where can I flee from your presence? And the conclusion was, wherever he went, that the Lord was right there with him. Emmanuel. That's one of the things that the Bible emphasizes, is that God is after. He's after Emmanuel. He wants to dwell with you. And that should make us joyful. And it should make us gentle that the living God has chosen to dwell in your midst, in your very heart. God is in your midst and He's within you. And that should, that should humble you, shouldn't it? It should make you gentle that God Almighty, the holy, holy, holy God, who's a consuming fire, is with you and within you. That He desires to be with you. You get your head wrapped around that, it'll, it'll humble you. If you think about, for any moment or any length of time, how wicked your heart can be, how sinful you've been, how rebellious you've been, and yet God is dwelling inside of you and with you. Wherever you go, He desires you. And, um, that's, that, that, that should make us gentle with every other person. There are people in this world, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but uh, there are people in this world who are very difficult to deal with. A friend of mine used to call them sandpaper people because they, they, they rub off your, your rough edges. Um, they rub you sometimes the wrong way. I don't know if you've uh, picked up on this or not, but people can sometimes get on your nerves. They can make you very annoyed. Well, what's going to keep you from staying annoyed and what's going to keep you from staying upset and mad is the fact that the Lord is at hand. God Almighty, the holy, holy, holy judge of everyone is right there with you, enjoying you, enjoying your presence, desiring your presence, setting his blessing on you, uh, these things, you know, these kind acts of God are meant to lead you to repentance. They're meant to lead you to be gentle with others, to be forgiving, to be patient, to be loving. The other thing, obviously, it pointed to in the historical setting 
was the judgment that God was bringing upon uh, the nation of Israel who had, for the most part, rejected him as the Messiah. And he was going to bring that destruction in, in AD 70 and 66 through 70. And that was at hand. It was at the door. And judgment was coming. It was beginning with the household of faith. And um, so there was a need to be gentle and to wait for it. And there's a need for us to do the same. And then in verse 6, he begins this call to, to not be anxious about anything. There again, that's a tall order, isn't it? That's why he begins with rejoicing in the Lord, always and again rejoicing in the Lord. Um, because not being anxious about anything is pretty profound uh, uh, maturity, to say the least. But it says, don't be anxious, don't be agitated, don't stampede like a, like a herd of, of cattle who are spooked, right? A lion comes out and shows up in the uh, in North Africa or in Asia, the tiger shows up on the plain and and all the the antelope stampede, all of the zebras stampede because lions will eat you, right? And so the devil is like a lion. He's out ready to devour somebody. And there's all kinds of things in this world that can make you anxious. COVID-19 can make you anxious. The election can make you anxious. Can it not? These orders to be secluded can make you anxious. It's amazing how many people had to seek marriage counseling because they had to actually stay with their spouse for an extended period of time. <laughs> oh boy. There's all kinds of things that can make you anxious. Fear of socialism, fear of white supremacy, or even with black supremacy for that matter, in certain zip codes. Sorrow, fear of death. There are all kinds of things that can make you anxious. Loss of job, loss of income, loss of children. They don't listen anymore. They've gone off the deep end. Loss of a spouse. All kinds of things can make you anxious. But the Bible here says, do not be anxious about anything. And I looked up the word anything. It means every single solitary thing. Imagine that. Uh, God says, don't be anxious about anything. It's not an unreasonable request. That command to not be anxious about anything highlights the wonder of God. It highlights the sufficiency of your Savior. It underlines and puts in bold print how wonderful a counselor your Savior is. How almighty a God He is. How perfect in every way He, he actually is. Do not be anxious about anything. Don't let anything make you 
worried. It's not, it's not saying that it's a sin to be anxious. We all get anxious. We all get worried. Uh, but it is a sin to stay in that state. It's a sin to stay in that state because you've got an out as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a believer in the King of Kings. You've got an out, and the out is prayer. That's the next phrase. But in everything, by prayer, which that word means the general, the general word for prayer. And, um, you know, you can always tell the strength of a person spiritually by their prayer life. Do you pray about everything? Have you seen the fact of what Jesus said in John 15? Without me, you can do nothing. Another word I looked up. Nothing means not nothing. It means nothing. It means you can't do anything. That's what Jesus says. Without him, you can do nothing. Um, so that should speak to uh, your heart. That if, if without Jesus you can do nothing, then you definitely need to be praying about every single thing. You determine a church's health by attending the prayer meeting um, and seeing who's there. 50 or 60 people may attend church, but how many people attend prayer meeting? Like the preacher one time said, if you can't say amen, say ouch. Because you can always determine how strong your, your faith is in Christ by, by how often you pray. How often you pray. But pray, it says here, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Word means petition. It means being specific with God. Not because God needs to be informed about your circumstances. He knows what you need before you ask Him. But being specific with God means that you're believing that God is able to take care of every single solitary thing in your life. That all of the subtle nuances of anxiety, He can handle it. He's sufficient. He's able um, to do that. So you can bring every single request, every single petition to God in prayer. And that's what it calls us to. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer, by supplication, with thanksgiving. Now, why did he stick that in there? With thanksgiving is such a key component of this command. Because thanksgiving calls you to remember who God is. It calls you to think about God's past. God's presence and God's promises. It calls you to think about God. It calls you to fill your vision with God. His sufficiency, His past achievements, His presence in your life, His promises. God has never failed to keep His word. It takes more faith to doubt God 
than to believe in God. Because God has proven himself down through the millennia. He always keeps his promises. He always does what he says he's going to do. And so it's common sense, although uncommon, to believe in God and to trust in him. With thanksgiving, when you have a petition, whatever it might be, frame your petition with thankfulness. Let's say, for example, you're looking for a job. Well, you frame your petition with thankfulness. God, you're able to supply every need that I have according to your riches and glory, and I give thanks to you for your ability to so orchestrate everything in this earth so that my needs are provided for, that everything works out for the good of your people. In light of that, I'd like to ask for blah, 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 whatever that might be. And so frame your petitions with thankfulness because that fills you with joy. It fills you with trust in God to remind yourself of who God is, what he's already done, what he's promised to do, and how his record is absolutely impeccable. And so with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You know, oftentimes we come to prayer meetings and you ask people for prayer requests and people say, well, I don't have any prayer requests today. Well, you have a problem if you don't have any prayer requests. I'm going to tell you that right now. You have a problem spiritually if you don't have any prayer requests. Yes, you do. Shouldn't you always have a prayer request to love Jesus more? Shouldn't you always have a prayer request to love your neighbor as yourself better? Shouldn't you always have a prayer request to repent more sincerely of sin? Shouldn't there always be a prayer request to bear witness to Jesus Christ? Shouldn't there always be a prayer request to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ? Yes is the answer to those questions. In case you were wondering, those, those prayer requests should always be on tap along with a whole lot of other things. People who don't have any prayer requests when they come to prayer meeting are under some kind of illusion that they have arrived to the, to the absolute zenith of their maturity at that particular stage in their development as a Christian. Now we know, we all know that that's uh, not true. And so, and just like there, there's always something to be thankful for. When you ask people and, and ask uh, believers, you have anything to be thankful for? And, and there's dead silence. That's a problem. Uh, yes, it is. There, there always is something to be thankful for. Even the things that we consider trite, uh, they're not trite. They're a reason to be thankful. So let your request be made known to God. And, and the result of doing so is that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 7. The peace of God, the shalom of God, uh, the well-being that God gives to you, the stability. Isaiah said, Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed 
on thee, O Lord, because he trusts in the Lord. We're called to be students of God. We're called to be uh, people who are God-obsessed, Christ-like people. That's what God calls you to be, a person who is God-obsessed, Christ-like in your character. This world needs a whole lot more God-obsessed, Christ-like people. Uh, the peace of God which transcends or surpasses all your understanding, just because you haven't figured out how God's going to answer your prayer, don't try to put God in that same box of ignorance with yourself. God is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. He's present with you, he's got all power, and he knows all things. He knows everything about everything. And he is not limited in the same way that you are. He'll give you peace when you pray, even though you may not get how he's going to bring you through it. He's going to do it because he promised. The good work he began, he will faithfully bring it to completion. Yes, he will. And that's why we're called to rejoice in the Lord so our trust might be in Him. That we might have faith to petition God, to cry out to Him, to be thankful, and to lay our requests out before Him. Take your burden to the Lord, like the hymn writer said, and leave it there. We often want to take it back. Let me figure this out for you, Lord. Let me, let me, let me help you out, God, and and figure out what we're going to do about this. God does not need your help. In case you haven't realized that yet, He really does not need your help. God has been doing fine long before you came along. You're the one. You're the one in need of help. God does not need you to pray for Him. He, he calls you to pray to Him. Um, he gives you peace that surpasses all understanding. It guards your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And notice how all these things come to you in Christ Jesus. We call upon the name of Christ when we pray. We enter into God's presence in Christ Jesus. We lay our requests at God's feet in the name of Jesus Christ. It's not like some magic pill, but it is a, it is a glad acknowledgement that we are in Jesus Christ, and we have nothing apart from Him, and we have every single blessing in Him and in Him alone. So we are thankful to enter into God's presence in the name of Jesus Christ, acknowledging His exclusivity. He's the only reason why we can come to God, and He's the only reason we get anything from God. And so we gladly acknowledge that all of these things come to us in Christ Jesus. Um, and then in verses 8 and 9, he calls us, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, to think about these things. You and I need our brains washed with these kinds of things, the things that are true and lovely and, and honorable and uh, excellent and worthy of praise. And you know, all these things describe Jesus Christ, don't they? Of course they do. 
They all describe Jesus Christ. Who is more honorable and true, more just and pure and lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise than Jesus Christ, his being and his works? Because they're the works of God. And so what this passage is calling us to is to, is to think about Jesus Christ. Think about his excellencies. Think about his beauty. Get our mind hooked on Jesus. Be God-obsessed and Christ-fixated. Addicted to Jesus. It calls us to be a student of his, to have our minds captivated and enraptured with, with Jesus Christ. And when we do, there's a result here as well. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. You can't practice any of these things unless your mind is caught up with who Jesus Christ is. That's what it says in chapter 2 of Philippians. It says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And that mind was a mind that counted other people more significant than himself. A mind that sought the interest of others, not simply the interest of oneself. That's the mind of Jesus Christ. That's the mind that led Jesus Christ, who was God Almighty, to empty himself, not of his deity, but of all of the glories of heaven, as it were, in some respect, the, the comforts of heaven, dare I say the conveniences of heaven, but he, he emptied himself and took the form of a servant born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. His objective was service. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give up his life as a ransom, as a payment to bring deliverance for you. And he calls you to do the same in some lesser manner. You can't die for people's sins, but you can give up your life for the kingdom. You can give up your life for the king. As he says in another place, you can seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the other things that make you anxious. As that passage also points out in Matthew 6, he will provide for you. Every basic necessity will be given to you as you seek first the kingdom and the righteousness of God. So he calls us to this, and the God of peace will be with us. Uh, Paul had already uh, taught them some things, and they had received the gospel from Paul. They heard the gospel from him and how to live for Christ. They had seen it in his life, and uh, he calls them to practice these things. And this this brings out a practical point for us. Can people, can you actually say to people, imitate me? Paul said it all the time. Imitate me as I imitate Jesus Christ. And uh, our life should be uh, so wrapped up in Christ and addicted to him that we can actually call people, follow us as we follow Jesus Christ. Um, and that uh, is important, that our life is supposed to be an example. And the only way, obviously, it can be is if we spend 
some close, intimate time with Jesus Christ and are truly devoted to Him, wrapped up in thinking about Him, as it says here, thinking about what's true about Jesus, what's just about Jesus, what's excellent about Jesus, what's praiseworthy about Jesus. Everything is praiseworthy about Jesus. Having a mind wrapped up in Him, being a student of God's Word, a student of God Himself, so captivated with, with who God is that, um, that we are simply overwhelmed uh, by the Lord. And that's what He calls us to, um, to be like Jesus Christ. When we are like uh, this, uh, the Bible promises in the last portion of this section is that the God of peace will be with us. The God of peace will be with you when we rejoice in the Lord always. When the character of Christ, and what's particularly highlighted here is the gentleness of Christ, is something that's reflected in our life, knowing that the Lord is at hand and He is with us. When we are prayerful to God, casting all of our cares upon Him, we increasingly become that God-obsessed, Christ-like person. And such a person like this makes you able to call doubters to faith in Christ, call the faithful to action for Christ, call the fatigued to rest in Christ, call the feeble to be fortified in Christ, and the forgetful to be fixated on Christ. God promises that the God of peace will be with you. This Thanksgiving season, let's not forget about the Lord. It's often because of laziness and forgetfulness and our own sufferings often that keep us from being thankful to God. Don't let it happen to you. Be diligent in studying who God is, being obsessed with who He is, calling one another to be reminded of who God is. Often it's the way we relate to one another that calls us away from thankfulness. Have you ever surrounded yourself with people who always are complaining, always grumbling about something? Something's always wrong. Well, in this world, something always is going to be wrong. But we have to be people who find our joy in Jesus Christ, find our dependence on Jesus Christ and find our minds captivated by Jesus Christ so that when we're annoyed or when we're called away from uh, the faith uh, we are we catch ourselves and we remind ourselves of the goodness of God and it's interesting how in this in this passage everything is in the plural stem the use or in the plural stem, and it calls us to be corporate in our prayer life. And I would commend you uh, to be 
uh, involved in corporate prayer, to be involved in corporate thankfulness, because we need to hear the stories that God is doing in the life of his people in order to live a life of thankfulness, a life of peace, and enjoy the presence of the God of peace. God bless you and keep you in Christ Jesus.